No, the, um, the titles that we give to, give to things, because, as I say, they came a lot later than the scriptures were actually written. Um, and I always almost fall out with the Sermon on the Mount, um, because, to me, when you say sermon, it says something which is structured, that you've actually thought through, that you've planned, you've put together, you're actually trying, you're trying to make a point at the end, and probably says more about the way my mind works, but I always try and end up with some conclusion at the end about what I've been saying. Um, some people, of course, carried the idea of structure to extreme. Um, I mean, there was the famous case of the cleaner who was cleaning on Monday morning and she found the sound of the pastor's notes in the pulpit and she was really quite intrigued by it. Not the content, she'd heard all that the day before, but it was the notes alongside the content which said things like, pause for effect. Point. Look serious. But the one that really intrigued her was the one with big red, red capital letters. It said, shout very loud, argument very weak. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think the Sermon on the Mount's like that, but um, what I don't think you're doing is I don't think you're looking at a carefully constructed talk. I think what you're actually looking at is Jesus sharing his heart, mm. and he shared most of the contents on at least one other occasion, and little bits of it keep cropping up throughout the Gospels. It's made a little bit complicated as well with the fact that um, the Matthew's Gospels was written anything up to 45 years after the events it's describing. So a lot of it is, though I'm absolutely convinced the Holy Spirit guided the writer, um, a lot of it is, is on recall. So do you see, do you see the problems we've got? Um, I'm saying this because the passage we're looking at today isn't a carefully constructed argument. It's not like, do you remember the weekend uh, when um, Tim talked about, not this Tim, the, Tim, the other Tim that we had, uh, Tim Morley, um, he said that, no, that Paul's letters so often are very, very carefully crafted arguments. Uh, and his background as a lawyer came out. But, you know, John's gospel is John speaking from the heart. And what we've got in the Sermon on the Mount is something like that. It's Jesus speaking from the heart. And the fact he jumps around a bit. In fact, I, I, the thought did occur to me that if he'd submitted this as a piece of work to the Nazareth College of Divinity, um, he'd have probably got it turned back, uh, sent back to him with a comment um, that, um, would you please redraft, paying much more attention to your structure? Because the structure isn't there, it jumps around. <clears throat> and, um, and this is a good example. Um, because having previously taught on prayer and fasting, Jesus plun suddenly plunges into this section that we've read today. Let's see if technology is still working. Yes. Now, that's not the title that you'll find on the PowerPoint or any print at the moment. But I actually took this title from a Bible commentary. And it seems to me to sum up what this particular passage is all about. You'll find out later I've actually got an alternative title. But that seems to me what it's all about. Um, it's something that's... If I say it's dear to my heart, I don't mean worldliness is dear to my heart, um, but this whole sort of topic, um, because I don't know about you, um, but the tradition I grew up in um, was very strong on avoiding what it called worldliness. And what they defined that as was having very little social contact with non-Christians. It was definitely discouraged. Avoid entanglements with trade unions and politics and anything like that. And I can, I can, I can, rem I can remember um, coming, coming back from university and saying that I, was, that I was looking forward to getting the vote at 21. That dates me, doesn't it? Um, 
and being, t- being told in no uncertain terms by one of the elders in the church, no, don't get involved, don't, don't, don't get voting, don't, don't worry about what the political parties are doing. Um, I wasn't happy with it then, I'm even less happy with it now. Uh, the other thing it did, and it did probably to excess, but it filled up life with church-based activities. In my life, it did fill up life with church-based activities. You know, you really hardly had a moment to spare. And there were certain things were an absolute, absolute taboo. Um, like, for example, attendance at the cinema, or the theatre, or even football. And you can imagine I had great fun. I had, I had, I, I had great fun doing, doing A-level English, which expected us to attend a certain number of plays. I can remember standing outside the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool thinking, I hope I'm not spotted. They'll think I'm worldly or something. Um, and, but that was, that was the culture. That, that was the way it was. And the underlying reason for this was there was this conviction that Jesus was going to return at any moment and would whisk us away before things got really nasty. And Therefore, against that day, we keep as separate as we can from the world, from the rest of society. And we've certainly got no real responsibility for what's going on in society. The rest of society could do what it liked. Um, We were the church, we'd keep ourselves separate apart from evangelism. And I must say, in that church's defence, it did do a lot of evangelism. I'd question how effective it was, but it certainly did a lot. Now, I don't believe that a there is such a thing as a list of do's and don'ts. I certainly don't believe, as Christians, we've got the option of stepping aside from what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And because I plunged in on this word of worldliness, I thought, let's find a definition. I couldn't find one. So this is, in the true tradition of Blue Peter, this is one I did earlier. Wrong way. Sorry. Let's have a look at it for a minute. Because what I tried to think was, okay, what's society all about? What's, the, what's most of society about? And it's this. It's a belief system wholly based on humanistic beliefs and values that takes no account of God and his kingdom. And this may or not take, take some measure of responsibility for society we live in. So that was my definition. That was my working definition, if you like, of, of worldliness. However, have a look back. Uh, by the way, or just before we go on to that, there was a tendency, there was, it wasn't a tendency, it was a definite view in those days, to say, no, we had no responsibility for what was going on in society. It's moved on a bit now. Now the tendency is to... or to say, well, I'm not sure if I can sort that out. So we've moved on a bit, but we're still not always taking responsibility we should do, in my view. Just, just um, have a look though and see what Jesus said. So if you've got your Bible open, turn back to chapter 5 and verses 13 to 16. And it says, and it's talking, <coughs> it's talking to Christians, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavour, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. It doesn't say try and be, it says you are. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on the hill can't be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket and on a lampstand, but it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light then so shine before men that they may see your good works 
and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but that says pretty convincingly to me that we have actually have got a responsibility for what's going on in society. Would you agree? Yes. You know, because we're talking about being salt and light. In other words, we've got to get involved. Um, and we've got some responsibility for it. It also says that while we, while we shouldn't be boasting about our good deeds, about the good things that the church and we as individuals do, we should be quite upfront about it. But have we been so far? Mm-hmm. Now, I tried to think of an example of someone I knew that um, was this. I'm sorry, I'm going to name drop here. Um, the most outstanding current example I know of this working is a chap called Stephen Timms. Any heard, anybody heard of him? Our careers you know, bumped into each other a few years ago when I was working in Newham, and he was, um, he was leader of the council at the time. Uh, he's now the MP for East Ham, and since October 2008, he's been the number two in the Treasury. So don't blame him completely. There are other people in the Treasury. <laughs> However, the interesting thing is, if you go to Stephen Timms' website, he's there in politics due to Christian convictions. And he is absolutely upfront about this. He wants to be salt and light to society. He doesn't hide his Christianity. And by the way, in case you're feeling cynical, his expenses are the second lowest in the house, all right? <laughs> he, um, the other thing, and of course, unlike the previous prime minister, he, he does God. To my knowledge, he's the only MP who, in who's who has got his club listed as Plasto Christian Fellowship, which I think must be a first. But the interesting thing is, I, I don't agree with everything Stephen, Stephen Tim says. If I lived in his constituency, I probably wouldn't vote for him. Not because I don't respect him as a Christian, but there's some political views I wouldn't go with. But he is in a great tradition of that set by William Wilberforce, General Booth, Elizabeth Fye, Keir Hardy, and others. And, however, there's another side to this coin. On the other side of this coin, is in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't bother to hand you feel you have to. And it says this, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't have the attitudes, the patterns of behavior of the rest of the world. Don't accept the underlying philosophy or thinking of society, which by and large is not godly. And most that you meet is humanistic, or to use the word, word we're using at the moment, worldly. And it can be quite subtle. Um, I remember, um, people, people remember, remember going, going to Swansea a couple of years ago and being caught in the father and mother of all traffic jams on the way back. I don't know how many hours we sat there. And we got home, and next morning I happened to mention this to Sue, Sue Wallington when I, when I picked her up, and she brought me up sharp. She didn't, don't you, she realised actually, because uh, I described this awful traffic jam and how long we'd sat there and how boring the M4 can be at the you know, eight o'clock at night, whatever it was. Uh, and then she said, oh, yes, and, and, and did, did, you, did, you, did you pray for them all? <laughs> Sorry. My reaction, and I'm not going to... Pete can feel guilty himself, but my reaction was, no, I didn't. But actually, what I was doing was I was behaving humanistically. And I wasn't actually trying to bring God into the situation. To see how subtle it is. Um, in Matthew chapter 6 the verses we read at the beginning what Jesus is actually answering he's answering the question of okay this is the society we, behave, we live in this is the society that we've got 
how do we actually react? How do we actually behave? And the first one is in, if you want to refresh your memory, in verses 19 to 21. And I've headed this, what are your priorities? What are your priorities? It's talked about money. It gives us a problem here. Um, is it wrong for Christians to be rich? Or pursue a career that's got high wages? Well, I hate to say it, um, Philemon, who worked with Paul in the early church, was rich enough to own quite a few slaves. Uh, please don't get diverted by whether it was right for him to own the slaves or not. The fact is he was rich enough to have them. That was the society of his day. Jesus' body was not looked after someone who was broke. Jesus' body was looked after by Joseph of Arimathea. And it's pretty obvious that he was a very, very rich man. And the whole key to this is to go to 1 Timothy, and you know it as well as I do, most of you, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, which does not say money is the root of all evil. The film Chicago said that, and as far as I know, the film Chicago is not wholly writ. Uh, what he actually says is, the love of money is the root of all evil. It's, and this passage in Matthew is actually talking about priorities. See, it's possible to spend many, many happy hours accumulating wealth, accumulating career progression, accumulating qualifications, pursuing a hobby, and that becomes your priority. And Jesus is actually saying, no, get your priorities straight. Let me give you three examples. Um, two are slightly light-hearted, uh, one's quite sobering. Let's go back to Stephen Timms. Um, very good class degree. I think he got a first, I think he got a first from Cambridge, something like that. Uh, very good class degree, hunted by people from the city when he finished the university, um, heading for a very well-paid career in the city. When God called him over a period of time, over about two or three years, to go and first of all live in Newham, and then become a counsellor, and then become an MP, to serve the people of Newham. You see, see what I'm getting at? They became his priorities. It wasn't the pursuit of that very well-paid career, which was very much open to him. Someone I've referred to before, a bit nearer home here, Ian Rawley. Um, again, extremely well qualified. Um, qualified fully as a barrister. I don't know about you, have you ever, have you ever met a poor barrister? I don't, think it, don't think the breed exists. Um, God called him. God called him into full-time ministry. And that became his priority. Then the sobering one, um, the man in Luke 12. Uh, you might remember the story. Um, very successful farmer and expanding his business. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones. Expanding his business became the priority in his life. And in the parable, which I have a sneaky feeling it was an actual story. I think people knew who Jesus was talking about. Read it in context, I'm sure that's the case. In the parable, or the story, God said, Fool, this night your soul will be required from you. Then whose will these things be that you provided? Now, I don't think that either Stephen Timms or Ian Rawley, at the end of their lives, will have God say that to them. Because they've got their priorities right. You see, it's a very simple challenge here. Um, What's my priority? What's your priority? Is it the acquisition of wealth, of comfort, career, pleasure? Put in what you like, by the way. Or is it the kingdom of God? Because what your priority is, 
starts to define you as a person. What you spend your time doing, what you, the emphasis in your life is, starts to define what sort of person you are. Another thing that defines you as a person is what goes on between your ears. And I've called this next section, what goes in, what comes out. Uh, you need a little bit of background here. Um, the Jews described the window, sorry, the eyes of the window or the light of the soul. In other words, what you take in through your eyes, or indeed any of your senses, dictates what goes on between, between your ears. It dictates your actions, it dictates your attitudes, it dictates your behavior. Some people stop here and say, no, it doesn't. Well, if it doesn't, can you tell me why millions of pounds are spent in the advertising industry every year? Because the advertisers believe, and they've got a lot of evidence to support it, that adverts work. Can you tell me why, in most of Western Europe now, tobacco advertising is banned? Because it's recognised. It produces something. So what we take in is actually very, very important. Um, I was having a conversation with someone a little while ago, not in this church, um, and we were talking a bit around this line, and quite suddenly um, this person said, well, I don't watch pornography. I, I risked the temptation to say, well, I didn't say you did, but you know, obviously he felt this is what, where the conversation was, was heading. But it's actually much more subtle than that. Um, <laughs> see, what I'm saying is this. Let the Holy Spirit guide your conscience on this. What I'm not going to do is, I'm not going to stand here and tell you what to do. What I am saying is, I'll tell you two decisions that we made, that I made, uh, over which I've got no regrets. You make your own judgments, see if you can model them yourselves. Right, you ready for confessions? Okay, here we go. When our children were young, Sam's not in, is he? When our children were young, we didn't, watch them, we didn't let them watch EastEnders. Came a time, probably then about their teenage years, when we relented and let them watch it. The reason was quite simple. Um, we were concerned at the attitudes it portrayed, the moral stances it takes, moral positions it takes, uh, and we just didn't want that coming into their mind. Came a point where we had to say, your responsibility, if you want to watch it, it's up to you. And I must say, I don't watch it, but occasionally I'll be in a room when it's on, and I actually feel uneasy watching it because of the moral attitudes and the, the attitude, that, you know, the whole lifestyle that it's presenting. Okay? Now, you're very, very happy to sit there and think, oh, he's just being precious. Fine. But just think about it. That's a decision we made, and it's a decision I've got no regrets over. The other one which might surprise you is this. Um, a few years ago, I bought the um, Eagle Has Landed, um, Jack, um, a Jack Higgins novel. It's a great yarn. It really is. I read it in a couple of nights. Um, and on the strength of that, I, a few, few months later, I bought another novel. And I became quite a Jack Higgins fan, actually. He, he does write very well indeed. Um, I've actually stopped reading them. They're still on my bookshelf. Um, but as he, as he developed as a writer, he became much more interested in violence for violence's sake. And there was a strong occult thing coming in as well. And I began to feel, frankly, uneasy reading them. So I haven't got rid of them. They're still there. Um, but I decided, no, I, I don't want to read that. I'm having a tussle at the moment with um, 
Bernard Cornwell uh, and the Sharp novels, uh, which I've read and enjoyed. But after a while, I thought, hold on, <laughs> I don't like the attitudes. I don't like the underlying values on this. Now, again, I hope you don't think I'm being precious. If you do, I have to confess, I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over it. But I'm certainly not going to organise a book burning with Jack Higgins and Bernard Cornwall novels in the car park. Uh, and I don't think at the moment I'm going to lead a march on, on Albert Square. So don't get worried about that. What I am saying is, be aware of what you're taking in and the slow drip-drip effect that it has. It is rarely the major things. If something really dodgy comes on the television late at night, 99 times or 100, you'll turn it off. It's not as subtle as that. It's things that are packaged in a completely different way. And what I'm saying is, use your conscience before God and actually think and be aware about what you're taking in. Because I'm afraid whatever you take in has an effect. And if it doesn't, you're, you're saying that a whole new advertising industry is a waste of time. Okay? Let's move on to the next one. You can't save God and mammon. Um, it's not on this. Um, mammon, um, it's an Aramaic word that hasn't, hasn't been translated. Um, it's got, it basically means money, but it's much more to do than money. It's also to do with the system behind money, all that's involved in that. Um, the Amplified Bible that uh, Alex knows and loves so well um, has a pretty good shot at saying what it means. It comes up with um, this definition, deceitful riches, money, possessions, and what, what we trust in. And guess what? We're back to priorities. We're back to priorities. Essentially, what it's saying is this. You can't serve God and his kingdom as a priority in your life, and at the same time, serve the accumulation of wealth, pursuit of career, etc. as a priority. It is not saying building up wealth, pursuing a hobby you really enjoy, pursuing a career is wrong. It's simply challenging your priorities. See the difference? It's an important distinction. And on this one, I'm afraid... You and I can't sit on the fence. We've either got that as a priority, or we've got that as a priority. There isn't a halfway house. And you've got to come down on one, one of two sides. Let me give you an example, uh, two examples, one well-known, one not well-known. Um, in his late 20s, Cliff Richards became a Christian, and quite soon he was faced with the dilemma, did he continue his music career, or did he go to Bible college training and full-time ministry? In the end, it came down to priorities. He chose to seek to serve God in the music industry. And the rest of it, say, is history. Although he pursued a music career, and I'm told somebody, somebody likes his music, don't they? No. Um, I'm, I'm, told some, well, I'm told people like his music. Um, his priority was serving God. And it was serving God and his kingdom in the music industry. Having a rocky patch at the moment, by the way. If you, get it, if you remember, pray for him. Because he's done a whole number of things he's having to work out. Something, something, about, something about getting past 60. I seem to, you know, recognise that feeling. Um, but, um, you know, he is having a rocky patch at the moment. Um, but he's, he knew what his priority was, and he went for it. The other person I'm thinking about is um, a good friend of mine who qualified as a chartered accountant. Uh, and... When I knew Martin, as a, when I was a young teacher, I felt very much like the poor, poor relation. Um, I suppose they're like barristers, really, aren't they? A um, um, couple of years after he qualified, 
Martin obeyed the call of God to serve him in the Far East, and in particular in Taiwan. And he gave up a very well-paid career. He knew his priorities. What he could not have known was that two years after arriving in Taiwan sorting out the language, the organization he worked for needed a field administrator. And guess what? It required the same skills that he'd used and developed in the city of London. See, what you've got there are two men who, before God, identified their priorities and went for them. But you've noticed something. One was to stay in what he was involved in. One was to come out. Which is why I'm not standing here and saying, these are your priorities. I cannot give you, I cannot give you a list of do's and don'ts. Except in the broadest terms. What I am saying is, sort it out before God what your priorities are. And it's only really you can do it. You might like to work it through with somebody and pray with them, but at the end of the day, it's your decision, as it was for Martin, as it was for Cliff Richards. The last one um, is interesting. Don't worry. Um, I'm glad Sam's not here because he'd, tell you, he'd, tell, he'd mention the fact that uh, since time immemorial, uh, I've got a nasty habit of starting the engine up and thinking, have I locked the door? Um, and getting out, getting out the car and going and checking if I've locked the door. And I'm sorry, I'm still doing it. Um, let me show you a couple of quotes about, about um, worry. I like some of these. Have a, have a read of them. <laughs> I've developed a new philosophy. I only dread one day at a time. I like that one. Glenn Turner. Worrying is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. And that one, I never thought of George Bernard Shaw of speaking, of saying something that is really his kingdom. But, you know, he hit, he hit the nail on the head there, didn't he? That last one. People have become more attached to their burdens sometimes than the burdens are attached to them. You see... Let me give you another quote I, I found, and it, I, it was actually in the Independent um, last September. And a chap called Simon Osborne, who's one of the lead writers for the Independent, he, he, wrote, he wrote this. Britain is an anxious nation, and the credit, credit crunch will only make things worse. How can we stop fear taking over our lives? And he went on to quote, this is a staggering statistic if he's right. Um, he went on to quote, there's something like one in 50 people in the UK at some point will be treated for receiving medical for physical issues caused by worry. One in 50. Uh, whenever I see a figure like that, I feel like saying, there's about 50 people here, it's not me, so which one of you is it? <laughs> um, <laughs> but you get the idea. It's a, sig it's a significant figure he's talking about. Um, you see, worry and fear is almost totally destructive. Uh, but sometimes we can't enjoy worry. Um, those of you who've read the... Um, Asterisk cartoons, um, wonderful things, translated from the French. Um, the, the, um, the, 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 tri the, the head of the tribe, because he's got everything going for him, everything's just running smoothly, uh, he has this fear that the sky's going to fall in on his, on his head, you know, because he had nothing else to worry about. And sometimes we can be, sometimes we can be like that. Um, well, actually, there's plenty to worry about. Um, there are people around, and it, and it could well include some of us, who are facing job insecurity, financial issues, health issues, many other things, um, outside our own circumstances, what have we got? We've got the world economy, we've got global warming, present wars, future wars, etc., etc. We are absolutely right to be concerned about any one of these. 
Let me give you one phrase which has helped me enormously. It's this. It's by Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher in the 19th century, and he said this, talking about worry. You can't stop the birds flying over your head. You can stop them, make it a nest in your hair. Do you see the point he was making? That, you know, you're going you're gonna to look at the news, you're going to look at your own situation sometimes, and you'll think, you know, the reaction is, oh dear, at least. Well, that's fine. That's perfectly normal. It's what you do about it then becomes the important thing. And, well, Jesus' answer to worry? He said this. He said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That was Jesus' answer to worry. It wasn't when something goes wrong and you're shaken by it, go off on a guilt trip because for a moment you have, started, you have started to worry. But it's more a case, okay, concentrate on the kingdom of God. Concentrate on the kingdom of God. And again, like the other things, um, I can't give you a tick list that you can go through. What I can say is, this is the broad principle. You work it out yourself. Just like I'm working out myself. Um, that was the title I started, started with. Um, I don't know about you, um, but it's a sort of, it's a sort of, it rather reminded me of, um, you know, you know the, um, the Scottish character in Dad's Army? Just to prove I do watch the television, I don't watch. You know, the, well, you know, I, I, I can almost, I can almost imagine, I can almost imagine Fraser saying, "Ah, Mr. Mandarin, it's a warning against worldliness." You know, you can just imagine it. Um, it's in that team. Well, I gave an alternative title last night. Uh, actually, when Tim asked me last night, and the alternative t- title is this: or how to be what God wants you to be. Now, how are we going to arrive there? Three, th- three things, quite simple, and they are simple. At least they're simple on paper or on screen. <laughs> this, is some, this is something you and I have got to work out. So just take it and pondering it, because I'm not going to do a nice tidy summing up. I'm just going to say what they are, and then I'm finished. And it's for you to work it out. The first thing you should do, the first thing I should do, is consider what my priorities are. Consider what my priorities are in that whole package that makes up my life. What's my priorities? Because that's going to dictate what I'm like. Consider what is going on in your mind. Consider what you're putting into your mind. And don't assume it's going to be one of the grand, great big issues. Nine times out of ten, it isn't. It's that subtle chipping away. Be aware of it. And the last thing is... Remind yourself regularly that as you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things are going to be added to you. I don't know about you, but there was a Bible week um, some years ago, and um, one speaker said that we should recite the word of God to ourselves at every opportunity, first thing in the morning. And I, I, don't, I, I think it was when the children were very young, and I was, I was probably pushing one of them around the site in, in their buggy. And, and there was this chap walking up and down outside the tent, it must have been about six o'clock in the morning or something, reciting the word of God loudly to himself. And then he got, he got near the one tent and was greeted by somebody who clearly wasn't blessed by saying, shut up and go to bed. <laughs> so so <laughs> that's not quite what it means when it says recite, remind yourself regularly. But 
remind yourself regularly because it links with the one before. Consider what's going on in your mind. You put the positive in, the Word of God. And in your actions, in your thoughts, in your deeds, in your reading, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. And so, so I'll tell you something. The things you can worry about may still be there, but your attitude to them changes. Thank you. Sorry, David. <laughs> 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 right. Trying not to strangle him in the process. Right. Okay. Yep. I think so. Okay.